years and years ago. The amplification on social is a product of people having fun. And ultimately, like, how do we get people to put their phones down, engage? And that is ultimately tethers to the bigger question, which is how are we thinking about community again? How are we open to re-engaging with strangers after being isolated during COVID perhaps? You're listening to Retail Remix, your inside access to candid conversations with the people shaping retail's future. Here's your host, Alicia Esposito. Best concepts like experiential retail and even retailtainment have come to the forefront. Museum of Ice Cream has been a model and a reference for many. And it's obvious to see why, just by looking inside of these experiences all across the world. But why does it have such an impact when we get into the psychology of retail, community, and consumer experience? I got to sit down with Manish Vora, who is co-founder and CEO of Museum of Ice Cream, to explore the influence and impact of this concept turned retail phenomenon. Now, Manish has a passion for not just art, but psychology and cognitive science. So we do get a little bit geeky when we explore the future of retail, what consumers want and need from physical experiences, and how brands like yours can take cues from the Museum of Ice Cream as you think about the future of your experiences. Listen in because this conversation is filled not just with inspiration and insight, but also some really, really fascinating science. Manish, thanks so much for being on the show. I'm so excited you're here with us today. Really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So you started the Museum of Ice Cream with your co-founder, Mariellis Bunn. Obviously, it is a stellar example of interactivity, bringing people together. I know it's an example that we've referred to a lot on Retail Touchpoints, but I'm sure a lot of folks listening are kind of like, well, why? Why ice cream? Like, What sparked this big idea that has ultimately shaped a lot of industries, especially retail. Like, let's start with the foundation of the origin story. Yeah, absolutely. We have celebrated seven years of launching this back in New York City in 2016. And it really was a dream that combined both of Mary Alice and my interests. She was the one who was most passionate about ice cream, but that was never in our wildest dreams did either of us think that Museum of Ice Cream or ice cream would be on any business card, although I don't think anyone has business cards anymore. But for me, I had been building experiences in the art world, really focusing around how do we get young people, adults, engaged in contemporary art and culture. And working with museums all over the country, but particularly in New York City, and in particular, the Whitney was one of my most passionate museums, which is where we ended up actually launching directly across the street from the Whitney, which was very purposeful. But previous to opening the first Museum of Ice Cream, I had been running a, an experiential tech space that combined art and technology called Lightbox that's in the Garment District. And this was an opportunity for me to really see how brands were activating and how do we activate using technology. And social media had become such the driver of experiential that ultimately what I saw was all the brands were trying to activate social media 
And it wasn't the installations. It wasn't how we were activating the technology. It was how do we act? It was the hospitality. It was the simple elements of like, are we making these experiences fun? And it goes back to like what I was passionate about in the art world, which is what I was interested in art was not tech art. It was sculpture. It was installation art. It was painting. It was traditional art in its forms. And why couldn't we get young people engaged in the experience? And what we started to see is that in museums that they were bringing immersive experiences or immersive installations or just art fairs that had alcohol, like Art Basel, the rise of Art Basel in the, two, in the 2010s was a great example of you just combine the social components of art into an experience and people would engage. And so I had this dream that had been brewing after eight or nine years of working like in the, what would we call the traditional art world, which was building a for-profit museum. And I started to st- see things in other industries like Sleep No More, and that's Punch Drunk out of London, who really changed immersive theater and started this kind of trend. And then artists like Saigo Chang and Kusama and Christian Markley, who were really pushing the boundary of what was traditional art and had this dream of building my own museum. That idea did not include ice cream until I met Mary Elspun. So I have to admit that while I loved ice cream was not my dream for sure. Any questions there? Do I keep going? Yeah, honestly, I do have a quick follow-up question because, you know, I really appreciate the focus on art and how that was such a substantial part of your background and your inspiration. And I'm curious, and maybe this is where you were going, like how that foundation and that passion for you almost informed and drove the way you collectively, you and Mary Alice, thought about this experience, right? Because I know that's the one thing that really stood out to me, seeing the Museum of Ice Cream in person and seeing all the different iterations of it. So, I mean, like, how do you kind of bring those two worlds together, I guess, is the the big question, especially for our listeners who do have consumer products and consumer brands. I'm sure that that's what they're thinking, how they can connect those dots. Yeah, I think that what we've seen in the last 10 or 20 years with consumers is that the consumers are with whether it's packaging, design has become so critical to everything, right? We we are seeing it in how it's changed hospitality, how it's changed quick service, fast food. The consumer wants to be in beautiful spaces. And I think that, you know, I think where we get maybe hatred from the art world, which has always been the case, even when I was in the own art world, which is when you push things and blur the lines between what is art and what is design, our view is that art is accessible. And I think social media and Instagram really started with having being more arty and Pinterest, for example, as being like more of an art platform. And that accessibility of digital and photography has, I think, pushed the design, the consumer demand for just being in beautiful spaces. And, and Mary Alice, as a designer, her design aesthetic is a contemporary approach. And the first museum, we actually did incorporate a lot of artists, like fine artists. We did like kind of funny paintings and sculptures. And these were sometimes emerging mid-career artists. But what we saw was that the art in itself is, you know, you can judge the art of a banana forest or a, a scoop wall, but ultimately design and art to me are one and the same. And architecture, design, the spaces and the color palettes and, and that purposeful, even the signage signage is art. And you look at the history of art with Warhol, for example, who was the ultimate at blurring the line. He was a graphic designer. 
And so I think that for us, this juxtaposition of launching across from the Whitney Museum, this brand new approach to what was a historic institution that had just moved to the meatpacking district, a historic neighborhood that had evolved into nightlife, into then like a design neighborhood to bring this like American institution of American art. It was almost like a joke in some ways, but also a like, hey, we're purposefully blurring the line. We're across the street directly from this institution that we love. I love this museum. And making you question, like, what is art? Is the Museum of Ice Cream art? It doesn't matter if someone says absolutely not, because that's your definition of art. But what we did was we sparked a conversation, right? Which is, can we combine design with an ice cream shop with theater? And that was like as simple as the formula. And that purpose of doing that was combining mine and Mary Alice's interests. Like I had this vision of building a museum that was democratic, you know, and then Mary Alice was like the most democratic thing in the world in her view was ice cream shops. And in so many ways, like you look at if on the consumer landscape, when we go down a street in the meatpacking district and there's two ice cream shops, there's not many places where you can buy five something for $5 and bring you like a lot of joy. There's certainly not restaurants in New York City that you can spend $6 and have something that is like really makes your day. And so the democracy of ice cream, how accessible it is, how international every country in the world, that was the disruptive element, which was like, this is the most accessible product in the world in many respects. You can make it at home. You know, it can cost you 10 cents to make this at home. And we're combining this with a place in the meatpacking district that's facing a museum that I think cost, you know, half a billion dollars to to build. And we are making a museum dedicated to this like incredible product that also happened to be the most social media food in the world. And so when we started looking into that element of like, it was so organic, it was she's passionate about ice cream, we were discovering ice cream shops all over the country, we were looking for ice cream festivals, we were looking at who's bringing this democracy, because When we go to ice cream shops in every city, we were seeing Gen Z and millennials at ice cream shops. Yet we couldn't in that period. We were like, no, everybody's stuck on their phones. Everyone's taking off on social media. Retailers can't get people into their stores. Yet young people are going to ice cream shops waiting in the middle of winter in line to buy an ice cream for six bucks. So there's something that the ice cream shop has figured out that has figured out for the last basically 80 years or 100 years in this country, whether it was the soda fountain to the ice cream shop that it has attracted this ability to connect people through the simplicity of the joy of this like cold treat. And that was like as simple as the formula for us. And the purpose for that was that honestly, we were bored. We were bored of the experiences. I was frankly bored of like being in the art world. It just wasn't lighting my soul up and the way that I was seeing disruptive elements in theater and even in retail and in experiences and pop-ups, you were seeing people who were doing things that were like making things social human social. And that's where we came up with this idea of like what we call like social squared is that our purpose was never to build social media spaces. We saw that design was moving in the sense of if you build beautiful spaces that activate play, they would be documented just like photography has documented great things in your life, whether it was going to the Eiffel Tower or seeing the Mona Lisa, you wanted to to capture that moment. The purpose was not to design spaces ever to be social media. We never really even had a conversation around, is this a social medium? It's like, how do we get young people to play? And it wasn't children, it was getting people our age to play. If you get them to play and you get them to laugh and you get them to smile and you get them to dance and you get them to sing and you get them to eat ice cream, A, they're gonna put their phones down because it's really messy and it's melting. And then capture will happen. 
like capture was secondary to this component. So ultimately the Museum of Ice Cream was designed as an adult playground. And Manisha, as you kind of go through the history and the process, I mean, it really shows like just how nuanced it is. And one of the most fascinating thing about retail right now for me is just understanding the intersection of commerce and culture. So like how the things we buy impacts how we look at the world, how we interact with the world and vice versa, right? So I think your note about ice cream kind of being this nucleus for American culture, right? Over the past hundred years and how it's like this interesting connecting point between so many different types of people, plus the impact of being in these fun dynamic spaces that do inspire interactivity and participation. I mean, it's a lot of powerful elements together. And I guess that leads to my next question, which is around this evolution, right? So it started as a pop-up, right? And then obviously now there is a long-term permanent strategy, you know, all over the world. So I guess one, the big question is like, if you were to identify like the reasons for this success, you know, in the early stages, right, when it was just a pop-up that validated like, oh, we have something going here. Like there is opportunity to scale and bring this to new markets and impact consumers all over the world. I mean, how did you kind of go through that process and how did you identify like, yes, okay, this is something that has legs, so to speak, and these core benefits or core experiences that our visitors have had to this pop-up, this does have opportunity to scale. That may be a loaded question, but it's just always interesting to me to see, you know, these concepts that start off as like pop-up, they go long-term and like how they kind of identify like what has that longevity and can scale across different markets and different consumers. Yeah, I think that I would love to say Mary Else was at Time Magazine at the time when we started this and was working in data and trends. So as a design strategist and obviously as a brilliant designer, I would love to say that in the midst of us popping up in from New York to LA to San Francisco and Miami, that we were like, okay, this is like, you know, we were kind of looking at data, but at the end of the day, we were just trying to like get open and test experiences and test hospitality. And we had, as you might recall, like we were having 100x the amount of demand that we had tickets. We were 100% sold out six months in advance. And so there wasn't a question of, is there demand for us? We never doubted that ice cream is a forever thing. And I also never doubt that if you provide experiences that deliver joy, our comp was not another experience or an exhibit. Our comp is an ice cream shop that you want to go back over and over and have fun in an ice cream shop. Or do you go over and over if you love bowling or you go to play mini golf? These are places of play and hospitality, restaurants, bars, we really started thinking about how are we monetizing time and how are we going to create spaces where people actually go and spend time. Ultimately, that first two years for us of popping up was an opportunity for us to see how do we actually like create hospitality? How do we learn the business of hospitality? Where do bathrooms need to go? How do you queue? Um, what installations worked? And the first five locations we had, other than the sprinkle pool, we never had a repeat installation. We were just continuing to test and try, and we continue to do that. And so I think from a validation standpoint, we were more focused on learning as opposed to 
it never crossed our minds that this shouldn't exist like permanently. And kind of from the beginning, I think we were like, this is going to be a, if there's a movie theater in every city, there are going to be 50 permanent experiences, experience houses. And so whether it's the history, whether it's a Chuck E. Cheese or a Dave and Buster's, there is, these are places of play, whether it's the, you know, Brooklyn Bowl and, and Bullmore and, and all of these concepts that have been around for decades and decades, ultimately we're interested in how do we counteract the antisocial behavior of social media that exists in digital space to what is being delivered in physical retail, entertainment, restaurants, nightlife, and so it was just a matter of like, it was always our intention to create permanent spaces. Got it. No, that makes sense. So as far as like identifying those ideal cities, was it just a matter of like pinpointing like New York City, for instance, kind of a no brainer, right? Because you have that reach, you have that good mix of people who live in New York City, but you also have some tourism. Like, how are you thinking about the expansion opportunity and what possible cities to target, right? Because obviously I'm close to New York City. I live in New Jersey. So when I went to Chicago, I was like, oh, like, it's great to see Museum of Ice Cream here. I didn't know they even expanded. So like, how are you guys thinking about that long term? Yeah, I think that there are hundreds of cities that this can exist in. I love the history of how ideas spread and evolution of food and evolution of concepts like the movie theater for example, like how quickly it took off, even in, in during the depression was like really, really fascinating because it was an experience that people could make affordable with that ticket price. And I think that we're seeing already, I, I think COVID actually set back our industry significantly, but I think you're seeing now that even this experience model is like moving into suburbanization. It's, this is not just going to be a New York, Chicago, LA, Vegas industry. You're going to see experience spaces, what we coined actually called the Experium, which are experience venues or experience museums. We think they're going to be these concepts or location-based entertainment. They're going to spread throughout the world. We saw after the Museum of Ice Cream, thousands of what we first started calling like copycats, unfortunately, like people who were really trying to replicate this sort of the formula and often just the social media components of it. But now there's really like, again, we're going to start to see the innovation, the evolution of interesting concepts. Both us and Meow Wolf launched, I think, within three months of each other in, back in 2016. And just like what we use as the example in immersive theater, that immersive theater is happening in small towns all around the world. And then you're seeing bigger concepts in New York and LA and, and London, where you have an entire ecosystem of experiential movie theaters that I think are influenced by immersive theater. So my point is, I don't think that there is a market restriction. I think the biggest restriction, which all of our retail listeners on this podcast are going to understand is that, you know, focusing on America, the biggest barrier is not the cities, it's the cost of building, it's the regulation around building, is that what we have and talent is that it was... You know, especially during COVID, you're saying, hey, the businesses that thrived during COVID were direct to consumer, they were digital and hospitality, whether it's restaurants, bars, nightlife, location-based entertainment, we got absolutely destroyed and we had to survive. And that impacts the entire ecosystem. Do if you're a young person graduating from college, are you is it more stable to go to work for Amazon and Meta, or you want to like go into hospitality and to location-based experience? I actually think now. We're seeing post-COVID where we're seeing that ticketed attractions, concerts, you're seeing the 
Taylor Swift's, you know, maybe the most record-breaking concerts that we have in recorded history. Maybe I think this is like the Beatles level phenomenon. These are just continued examples of that the IRL is still surviving and is competing. And maybe even AI will have the opposite effect, which is going to have a increased time availability for consumers, which makes IRL experiences, shopping in person, dining in person, experiencing entertainment in person, even more valuable. And maybe we'll see even a swing into the other direction. So I'm not sure I'm going on a diatribe here, but I actually believe that our biggest challenges right now are that companies in the tech space are very unregulated. And there's a lot of barriers and a lot of inefficiencies that happen in terms of getting concepts up which is even making it more difficult for pop-ups to emerge in cities. And there's obviously regulation that is needed, but there is a lot of red tape that exists and a lot of barriers that create a lot of cost barriers for the IRL that digital doesn't have. And so I think that is something that we're really passionate about and supporting and making sure that we are finding ways to support other people in our industry and cross-pollinating, cross-partnering. And we need new anchor tenants in retail zones. We need people to come out and shop. We need people to come, entire neighborhoods being impacted by office people not coming in and staying at home. All of this impacts the ability for our experiences and where they can survive, et cetera. So I do think that there is a dynamic that is a potentially positive uh, current, which which I think AI could be a major driver of opening up more time capacity for consumers. Fundamentally, COVID, in my opinion, proved to people that we are not happy living in a digital world, in a 100% digital ecosystem. And you've seen that for the last two or three years is that there was you know, I think a lot of pundits were like, okay, you're going to see people going back and traveling and doing entertainment for the first year. And now we're two, three years later, and you look at Live Nation and their tickets are selling at record levels all the way through 2024. They announced that they are outpacing ticket sales and then even pre-COVID. So there's something that the procrastinator, you know, saying, okay, people are going to go back to digital. I think there is been a recognition. I even think it's actually more from young people, from Gen Z and younger, that you're seeing them out more. They're out in the parks more. I think now the digital addiction issue is more of an issue for older folks, for people my age in their 40s and 50s. And we're actually having an easier time getting young people back in our doors than we are getting people to like get it, be in our experience and be present. Because in order for us to deliver our experience, just like everybody who's listening here, for us to be able to deliver that shopping experience, deliver that retail experience, deliver that restaurant experience, you actually have to turn off your phone. You actually have to engage in the experience. Otherwise, you might as well order your food at home. You might as well order your shopping delivered to you. And ultimately, it's coming back to like core hospitality. And I think that's going to be the trend for the next two years is like people are going to just go back to the basics of like great hospitality. Merchants are evolving their omni-channel playbook to include marketplaces, retail media networks, and more. So what's the goal? For 41% of respondents, it's to react more quickly to business and market changes. Retail Touchpoint's latest omni-channel and fulfillment benchmark survey outlines all of the ways brands and retailers are creating a seamless customer experience and the new channels they are embracing to diversify revenue and optimize their reach. Click the link in the show notes to download your copy of the survey sponsored by our friends at DePosco. And it's been interesting to see that synergy happen even more between 
hospitality, retail, and these entertainment experiences. And I think there definitely is a hunger there. And I'm glad you brought it up, you know, the long tail impact of COVID and, and that return to, and I guess, accelerated demand and hunger for person-to-person interaction and being a part of a community, being a part of something bigger that has interactivity and participation, because I know it's something that our audience wants to understand, right? Like how they can and should think of designing these experiences to maximize that enjoyment, that participation. But I know you also have a lot of interest in psychology and cognitive science and how just the way we're naturally wired, like our demands as humans, impacts these experiences ultimately. So like, how do you think about that? How do you kind of bring not just, you know, what's happening at a cultural level and how we live, but also how we think into all of this, right? Like what we as individuals, we as humans, need, like that hierarchy of needs, right? Like how does that kind of play into developing these experiences? Because like you said, I think it's so much more than like, oh, this is a cool place. I'm just going to take some pictures on social media and share it, right? Like there are a few layers deeper, a few other things that play here. Yeah, 100%. I mean, for us, so much learning has happened and a huge influence on both Mary Alice and myself has been Lord, Professor Laurie Santos, who has the Happiness Lab podcast and is a professor of kind of broke the mold. And I know millions of people have tuned into her her digital class during COVID. And, and fortunately, we've had a great collaboration with her. And I'm a Yale alumni and been able to go back and speak to Yale students with Laurie. And, and that class was a huge influence on us in terms of opening up the study of psychology. On the flip side, even docents and museum guides, they have for 50 years, I mean, museums are doing incredible things around docent training. And actually, we did docent training, funny enough, because where we launched, uh, Mary Ellison and I did this docent training at the Whitney and was a huge influence on how we think about the flow of guests, the guest experience. Um, docents are museum guides. And to me, are, it's the best way to like experience any museum. And so all of this with the study of psychology, and then I would say, you know, Laurie Santos will never take credit, but I, you're seeing there's a sociologist at University of Chicago. UT even has a class on happiness here in Austin, where, I, where I'm based now at the University of Texas. And, and I've been able to guest lecture at uh, Professor Raj's happiness class here. So you're starting to see not only an academic approach to the impact of the cell phone, impact of the psychology, there's a lot of work that exists already for hundreds of years around just thinking about community and what the impact of technology is going to be on our attention spans. And so these are the kinds of things that we're really focusing on, which is the it's easy for folks who have never been inside the Museum of Ice Cream to like group this as a experience that is because it's so amplified. In fact, we are considered, I think, in the top 10 most social media experiences in the world and maybe probably the most social media experience in the world by square foot. But that is not a flat image. Young people are not posting a flat image. They're telling stories. They're posting on TikTok. It's not a Instagram still photo from 10 years ago. That changed years and years ago. The amplification on social is a product of people having fun. And ultimately, like, how do we get people to put their phones down, engage? And that is ultimately tethers to the bigger question, which is how are we thinking about community again? How are we open to re-engaging with strangers after being isolated during COVID perhaps? And that's probably the thing that we're most passionate about. And 
as we start to evolve and come out of this period, which was extremely challenging few years to survive COVID is what you'll see is, you know, for the future of our company, Figure 8 Museum of Ice Cream and potentially new concepts that are coming down the road that are all built around how do you create space for people to play, engage and meet each other? Because ultimately, that's what the IRL is about. Separate shopping from dining, nightlife and experience. But, you know, ultimately, I think even shopping, the shopping experience is ultimately about whether you feel a connection to the person and the product is so tethered to the experience. The simple formula of an ice cream shop is that the reason why we love the ice cream shops of us growing up is that there usually was a really fun young person, maybe even somebody you knew in high school who was working behind that counter and you felt connected to that person and you wanted to try things and there was there was a, like a joyous moment. And I think that's the principle. I, you see direct-to-consumer companies and you're like, why is Warby Parker so successful? Warby Parker, it's not just because they had good UI. It's like you go into a Warby Parker store and it's fun. It's a fun experience to buy glasses. You go to Chick-fil-A and they're like thinking about the guest experience. And and so I think that sweet green, it's like we go to the sweet green because it's, you know, it's kind of fun to see your salad be made and made with a smile as opposed to just getting it delivered. And it tastes better. Psychologically, it tastes better when you see it and you savor it and it's in a beautiful space. So there is actually like psychology to taste, right? And smell. And and so all of these combined, the sensory elements, I think are super critical, but it all just, you know, ultimately for us, it's as simple as like, it's coming down to hospitality across the board. Retailers that really focus on hospitality are the ones who are going to survive and thrive, in our opinion. Yeah, a lot of really strong points there. And I think it's really interesting, right? Because you mentioned the elements that make an impactful experience. And I think sometimes like that idea of just like getting service with a smile and just like the feeling someone gets being a part of that particular experience. I mean, that's kind of uh, squishy, so to speak, right? It's kind of intangible. It's somewhat hard to measure. And I feel like we're in this era where it's like, we need for metrics, we need validation, right? We need to gauge the ROI, right? Because I feel like people turn to that as a way to reaffirm that what they're doing is working. But I mean, look at what you guys have done. Look at, you know, just the ripple effect and the share effect of the experiences that you're creating. So I'm curious, like, how do you think about success and how should other retailers and brands that are trying to think through this experience lens be thinking about measuring success and saying, yes, like this model, this approach is working? I mean, are there firm KPIs here that we should be talking about and thinking about? Or is it just a matter of looking beyond that? in a certain regard. Yeah, I think that in the business zone, I think ever it's going to be easy to always default to the classic metrics like dollar per customer. The things that we really care about is like time spent and and engagement, like true engagement and how you measure like qualitative, not quantitative engagement. The qualitative engagement is like how much time did you spend, you know, engaging with someone? How willing were you to participate without even being told to participate. Like how bought in are you into the experience? I think, as you said, fundamentally, you almost can see in a retail experience or in a restaurant, I always say it's like when it's the way I'm greeted at the front door. It's if I'm greeted with like energy, smile, happiness at a restaurant, I'm more likely to like that experience than if I'm not. And like, what if we just start that simply? Like I want to walk down the street and I feel happier on the street when people are friendly. 
when people say hello. And we have to reprogram because you know all of a sudden we were, our heads are down, our hands in our pockets. So I think we're not not measuring quantitative components to it. Um, I'd say time spent for us is like kind of the critical, critical measure for us. But finding systems and getting that feedback loop on the qualitative experience for us, the biggest component of success is if you actually talk to a stranger and engage in a positive way with the stranger. Because this is the hardest thing to accomplish right now in the world, is that right now, most of the engagement with strangers on digital is, is like Twitter. It's like a negative experience. There's just too much negativity in the, in sort of the digital sphere. And so can we get you to engage with us or a stranger and engaging with us, meaning the people who work in our spaces, we call our, our guest experience specialists or our managers, is not as powerful as if we can enable you to talk to someone, another guest, game changer in terms of the qualitative uh, uh, feedback of the experience. So that's our mission is like, can we create an environment to what we call connection? That's ice cream cone. We love our puns, but connection is the key, honestly, for us, for the longevity of the Museum of Ice Cream, the success. And I think that's the connection. And we can put ice cream cones in every retail shop and every restaurant, I think is, is ultimately what we're trying to measure, whether it's connection to the product or connection to your hospitality staff, connection to the brand. That's ultimately what we're trying to measure. Love that. And I love a good pun too. So connection really, <laughs> really hits deep for me. <laughs> so let, let's dig a little bit deeper into the influence and impact for retail a little bit further, right? Because I feel like like, like I mentioned at the top of the episode, like we have referred to the Museum of Ice Cream as an example of experiential done right, right? And I think as you have shared insights into your approach, your strategy, your vision, I mean, there's a reason, right? Like the fact that we're using this as an example is kind of unsurprising to me. So I'm curious, like we're speaking to brands and retailers, right? Whether it's through pop-ups, long-standing stores, they're thinking about what the future of experience is for them, what the consumer wants, how can they maximize that engagement, how can they get their stores to become these destinations for interaction, what should they be thinking about, number one? And number two, I guess the flip side, have there been any things done wrong or any pitfalls that they should be prepared for or or be on the lookout for? Because I feel like on one hand, there's so many opportunities for creativity, for pushing limits, for modeling after great experiences like yours. But then also, I feel like there could be like without the proper thought and strategy behind it, and you're just trying to replicate, it could probably easily fall apart, right? I mean, so how can brands kind of balance these two sides, the opportunities, but also the the innate challenges and possible pitfalls as they go about developing their approach? Yeah, I mean, I think that as we were approached by so many brands and so many agencies that were pitching, we're going to build you the Museum of Ice Cream experience for X, Y, and Z brand. And and I don't think you've seen a lot of success there. You've seen a lot of cost, a lot of agency fees that have gone to pitching and executing things that don't last. There's no longevity to that model. And I think there is like, I think pop-ups are great for, for testing and for consumer engagement. 
but building a experience is different than, you know, it's outside of the core of like selling a product. And I think that ultimately more effort and energy should be focused on just delivering hospitality. I think there was a period in which people were trying to force like social media amplification by like, you know, investing in moments and photo moments and now video moments and TikTok backdrops. And, and I think ultimately you see it's authenticity. It's about uh, it's about play. It's about like celebrating your best consumers and not trying to deviate from ultimately just delivering your product in like the most fun possible way and in the most hospitable way. And so, yeah, I think that hopefully we're long past the idea of, of the Instagram moment. When someone, when someone's like Museum of Ice Cream is a place where you take Instagram photos, I'm like, oh, well, that's clearly don't, you clearly haven't been paying attention to Instagram for the past 10 years because we're, right. so <laughs> we're so far past anyone looking at still still images. And that's just not the reality, right? It's like if you look at someone's story and what they're telling and what they're saying, it's about who they're with. And, you know, so I, I think that ultimately what is the formula is to me, the formula is our technology is making us disconnected. And honestly, the world is making it harder and harder for folks to build things in real life. It's more expensive with inflation. All the things that are happening in the world are actually making it harder for retailers to expand and to deliver. And hospitality is like, to me, just I keep coming back to this. It's about connection. It's about hospitality and not deviating from that. I think also when you went talked about the quantification of like, are we quantifying how much product is getting into people's hands, like through sampling, et cetera? It's like, no, getting the product into the hands of people for the purpose of joy, not to give them free things. And I think that often the experiences are based around, hey, we want just people to try. We want to give things free. We're sampling at these huge events, but people are not coming there for that purpose. So find the alliance of your product to the customer that like is that is like it's tethered to. When does your product make sense for an experience as opposed to there's a lot of people, there's social media amplification happening at Coachella. Is that going to be really the right place for you? I don't know. A pop-up model is something that is still going to happen because there's space in the world. And and I do think it's a good testing ground for products for people to engage. But ultimately, you have to drive a lot of that customer base in, or you have to be in very high-trafficked zones, which there are very few cities that have high-traffic zones. So the pop-up model works in places like New York and in certain zones of like Chicago. But then most of the cities in America, including Austin, and LA, and a lot of these markets don't really have foot traffic. We're still in an automobile society. In another podcast, we can talk about how, to me, the biggest threat to our connection is still the car. And hopefully we're five, 10 years away from us being on bike and more bike and foot friendly cities in America. That's great. And I do want to go into your point around collaborations and adjacencies, because I know you guys did a really fun partnership with Kendra Scott. I'm curious, like you mentioned a little bit, like how you think about those intersections. I mean, what's the long-term play or long-term vision there? Like, is your goal to build out those collaborations a bit more to pop up, so to speak, in these different spaces? I mean, as we think about expansion, right? What is the goal there? And what are the other opportunities that you're looking to pursue, as especially as we think about 2024 and beyond? Yeah, I mean, I think we love collaborations when there's like an alignment around joy. And there's, you know, it's about like creating an experience. And I think with Kendra, what's really special as as they have grown is that you go into their stores and their retail associates are feel like Museum of Ice Cream guides. 
And Mary Alice and I actually went into the store and, and after the opening, because we missed the opening of the collaboration. And so they didn't know we were there. And and there was like so much excitement around the Museum of Ice Cream installation in the store. And they were like pitching us about the like Museum of Ice Cream and this. And I was like, can we just like steal you guys? Like this authenticity, this like joy that's in the store is like why Kendra Scott at Museum of Ice Cream was like a joyful thing for us to do and an alignment. And I'm like, okay, like if I, I don't know if Kendra Scott's still private, but I'm like, I could buy this stock right now because if this is how their stores are run, they're going to continue to thrive. To me, that's a simple, like, you know, if I go back to my old Wall Street days 20 years ago, I'd be like, I'm going to buy Kendra Scott stock. (laughs) So I think collabs for us is not the like focus. Our business from the beginning, we thought that I'd say the two biggest opportunities, I'd say a lot of experiences, concerts, events are still really dependent on sponsorship. And we don't think that's the right model. Like you need to focus on, is this an experience like a functional experience with like directly to the consumer? Because the partnership stuff is really hard to navigate and and you want to do that authentically. And I think we have been judicious about this and over the history, you know, our two biggest partnerships was the Target partnership and the Sephora partnership. And they were just so on brand around play and playfulness and we'll continue to do a lot less. Um, You'll see a lot less. You almost never will see brand integration into the fabric of the museum unless it like really, really makes sense. So I think that we are continuing to focus on how do we, first and foremost, our business model is predicated around the guest experience and continue to innovate around the hospitality experience and anything else that we're doing, like a Kendra Scott we're working with like with Mars on with dub bars. We're working with a couple of things that are coming up the pipeline that will be surprising that are playful elements of, of how do we make a t-shirt playful? I'll give you that kind of uh, that little juicy thing that we're going to make t-shirts playful and integrate that into our experience. And it's authentic to the way that our experience and how you make an ice cream name inside of the museum and, and change your identity. And how do we do a retail collaboration around that? So I do think collabs are something that we're going to see more and more of, but we're always open to it, but it's not a critical part of our business model. Very interesting. And is there anything else, Manish, that we should be on the lookout for from you guys over the next few months or even the next year? I'd say the biggest thing coming down the pipeline very soon is going to be a new concept really built around connection and a bit more adult focused. So that's the carrot that I'm really excited about. And then we announced Miami opening next year and really excited to return back to a city in which we did a pop-up now five years ago and excited to bring that sort of Miami playfulness that was, it was the museum that I'd say was the biggest nonstop dance party. I'm a lover of dance, so we'll hopefully sort of bring back the the dance vibe of, of Museum of Ice Cream in Miami. Super exciting. Manish, thank you so much for taking the time out to chat with me. I know we unpacked a lot during our time together, but I think every step of the way you provided not just insight into the work you guys are doing, but also offered some actionable advice and takeaways for the folks listening. We have a lot of store folks listening to this, experienced leaders, and I know a lot of them look to Museum of Ice Cream as inspiration, both as consumers, but also as practitioners, especially as they think about what the possibilities 
possibilities are for the future of retail and, and customer experience. So thank you again so much for the time and for your for your candidness and for your transparency. It definitely made for a super valuable conversation today. Thank you so much. And to all of you listening, of course, if you have any follow-up questions for Manish or for the team at Museum of Ice Cream, we'd love to keep the conversation going on social media. Drop us a line on LinkedIn at Retail Touchpoints. And sometimes we're on Twitter too at our Touchpoints. We definitely think there is so much opportunity for ideation, for collaboration around what these community spaces and experiences could look like in the future. And of course, if you like this episode, we would love to hear your thoughts. We'd love to have you rate the show. So go to your preferred podcast player. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, frankly, anywhere else. We're probably there too. And while you're sharing your thoughts on this episode, be sure to subscribe to the show. We're always chatting with folks like Manish who are doing the work, who are bringing these new ideas to life. So if you do subscribe, you will get the latest and greatest conversations delivered right to your preferred device. Manish, thank you again so much for the time. And thanks to all of you for listening. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Remix. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, keep mixing it up.